This is a Career Channel program from UC San Diego Extension. Visit us at www.uctv.tv careers for videos, employment news, and trend articles to help recent college graduates and grads in career transition bridge to better employment. Well, welcome again. We're delighted to have you here. I'm Leslie Bruce, and I'm the uh, Director of Healthcare Leadership and Community Outreach for UC San Diego Extension. I work with Grace Miller, who is back there, and I'm going to ask her to wave her hand. She's the director of the post-baccalaureate pre-med program here at UCSD. Um, Grace and I welcome you again and are delighted to bring to you a panel today that's going to help you understand the various and sundry pathways to medical school for the persistent, and we are delighted that we have such a wonderful group here to talk so let's uh, not take any other time, and let's just get started with our first panelist. I'm going to start with you, Carolyn. Um, Carolyn Kelly is the Associate Dean of Admissions and Student Affairs for the UCSD School of Medicine. Carolyn, why don't you tell us about that? Great. Um, so, you know, our School of Medicine is a young school of medicine. Uh, we graduated our first class of students in 1972, so we're just a little over 40 years old in terms of graduating medical students. And yet um, the amount, I'm going to brag a little bit here about the school, (laughs) the amount that the school has accomplished in that relatively short period of time is really quite phenomenal. You know, we've gone from not existing as a school to being one of the top 15 ranked medical schools in the United States. Um, In terms of being um, an associate dean overseeing admissions and student affairs, um, I have a huge amount of interaction with applicants to the school, um, and I also work with medical students uh, throughout their time as medical students in terms of career advising um, and also in terms of helping them to find uh, research and community service opportunities while they're medical students. I think that... um, You know, one of the most challenging things about my job as um, a dean overseeing admissions is that we have exceptional applicant pools, right? We have so many students who are well-prepared to be medical students, and yet we have 125 positions in our entering class. So last year, we got 7,300 applications for 125 spots in our entering class. Those are horrible odds, right? We ended up admitting, I don't know, 3.5% of our applicants. And that's not because only 3.5% of our applicants were qualified. You know, many, many thousands of students are well enough qualified to come to medical school. So, so part of the challenging part of, of the job I have is, is trying to oversee a process that is, um, uh, has standards that meet the mission of the school to select incoming students, um, but that also are um, processes that are fair and equitable in terms of of how they assess applicants. So I brought up the mission of the school, and I think that's an important thing to to think about when when you talk about applying to any kind of professional school, because not all medical schools have really the same mission. Um, If you go to the UCSD School of Medicine website, you'll see that our mission statement is something along the lines of wanting to educate skilled and compassionate doctors who are sensitive to the needs of their community. Um, But that on top of that, another part of our mission is to 
to utilize the incredible infrastructure we have at the school in biomedical research and behavioral research and health services research to train future physicians who will create new knowledge in order to improve health care for our community, whether it be our region or our state or our nation. So, so that's sort of our overall mission. It's a pretty broad mission. Um, but we want students who have attributes that, that meet that mission. Um, and we want students who are academically ready to be medical students. So as you start to think about applying for, for professional schools, um, realize that admissions committees want students who are academically ready to be medical students. Um, and we can talk more about what that means specifically. But that's a big characteristic. But it's not enough, right? It's not enough to just be smart and have good grades and good test scores because on top of that, you need to be able to demonstrate to admissions committees that you have a knowledge of what it means to be a practicing physician, um, that you really have tested that, that interest and, and um, uh, still have the interest after testing it and, and being involved in situations where you're involved with patient care. Um, and we really look for a sense of uh, knowledge of what it means to be in a career of service. Because I think that's something many medical school applicants underappreciate about the career in medicine. This is really a, a career of service to others. And um, one can demonstrate that in many ways, and maybe we can get into some of that later during the question and answer period. But again, uh, the student who is all about grades and test scores but doesn't demonstrate to us that they care about other people, whether that's in a medical setting or a non-medical setting, is unlikely to be a successful applicant to our school and probably not a successful applicant to most schools. Um, so I think I'll, I'll stop there. Okay, then leave it at that. <coughs> I'd like next to have Dr. Clinton Adams, who is um, the former Dean of Western University College of Osteopathic Medicine of the Pacific in Pomona. And Dr. Adams is a DO, and I think that's an important alternative that people need to be aware of. Thank you. Um, this is a great opportunity to be here, and we're really focused on folks like you who are persistent. There's a, there's a thing about persistence, and it beats everything, including, uh, you know, high MCATs. Uh, and I, I, I just uh, want to thank you for your comments, because I'm going to be spending some time differentiating and creating similarities, and I won't have a chance to speak to many of the points. Our mission statement base of the College of Osteopathic Medicine basically is not only competent, but caring, compassionate, lifelong learner with a distinctive osteopathic philosophy. And that's what we'll try to talk about a little bit. It's a little little extra kick um, uh, that we that we have in the osteopathic profession. Um, I was asked uh, to do a number of things, so I managed to get from that big iPad down to a little one here. Um, the, the, the folks in the back were impressed. Uh, Western U, Western University of Health Sciences, is in Pomona, California, right next to Claremont, which is really a neat city. Pomona struggles. Uh, uh, and it's far east county, L.A., 
it's almost San Bernardino. Matter of fact, we wish we were just a little further into San Bernardino since we work with the uh, Arrowhead Regional Medical Center in Riverside County. Um, uh, Those are some of our main hospitals that we work with. Important to to distinguish what is, and we're, we're just barely a couple years younger uh, uh, than, than, than you folks. Uh, we were founded in 1997. And since that time, from a college of osteopathic medicine, we now have nine graduate uh, schools, uh, podiatry, dentistry, optometry, pharmacy, vet med, um, various RN uh, tracks for, ma- for doctorate degrees, PA is the only master's degree that we offer, uh, a PT, DPT, uh, and, uh, and I would just put a, a sideways plug. When you're, when you're trying to answer that question that you were asked about why you want to be a doctor, why don't you want to be a podiatrist? Why don't you want to be an optometrist? Uh, why don't you want to be a PA? You need to be able to answer those questions, too, and you need to search that. You really do. Uh, it's part of a team that we're building now. And that's what Western brings is interprofessional education. We, we smoosh you guys, sometimes they call it speed dating, but we smoosh you guys together every Wednesday afternoon to do group learning in order to look to the future, which this guy is building, wait till he talks, about how to care for people in the future. And it's going to be part of the team. And the physician is going to have to be the silent kind of captain, but not really. Going to have to be a facilitator, a leader. So we're trying to uh, focus that as one of our major objectives in developing the caring, compassionate, lifelong learner. Viva la difference. Uh, Okay, so what's the difference? Why? What's this DO or OD? OD is the optometry. DOA is, no, DO is, is uh, the osteopathic degree, the one I have. And I sign my name DO, not MD, but I have two board certifications, actually three because I doubled up on one. Uh, I did a family medicine residency in the Navy, uh, MD residency, and I've got MD and DO osteopathic board certification. And then later on from my midlife crisis, instead of running off with a girl half my age and, uh, in a Porsche, um, I did an anesthesia residency at GW. You know where that is? You know? Okay. So, so again, um, what's the difference? Um, as a physician, uh, I had the Navy Medical School Scholarship, full ride, uh, as a DO. Okay? And uh, in that Navy, I, I, I became an admiral as a physician, a physician admiral, not a submarine or a, you know, so, you know, there aren't too many of those because we're only, now we're one in four medical students, um, no, one in five, soon to be one in four. So 25% of American medical students are, are osteopathic, okay? Many of you know those folks, uh, uh, they're your friends. So then um, what's the same? The same books, course of study, the uh, length of off, uh, the length of uh, time, you know, the four years, uh, third and fourth year rotations, ability to take the same licensing exams, uh, you know, all of that, you got to do the same things. So what's different? I got to keep to 10 minutes, right? Uh, you know, what's different? Not 
completely different from what you just heard. We look for students like you with life experiences, hopefully a little bit older, uh, a little bit more mature. We look for students who believe in the osteopathic philosophy. Osteopathic medicine actually has a philosophy, um, uh, and that is uh, we worry about the body, mind, and spirit. These are published uh, the body, mind, and spirit, whether you have a cough, a cold, or you've got cancer, you're, we try to make you think about the whole patient. And so do they do. They do that here, too. Uh, form and function, structural. We, we spend a lot of time on the neuromuscular system and the autonomic nervous system. Uh, we believe if you can't move, right now I hear sitting is the new cancer. Is that what they're saying? So osteopathically, you've got to fix them up so that they can walk and run and, and dance. So we spend a little extra time. Uh, unfortunately, it's on top of all your other studies. That's a criticism because it's extra. Uh, we're using the biosciences. The body heals itself. We try to hold back. You know, how can we help the body heal itself through nutrition, through lifestyle, through um, uh, exercise? And, you know, how do we keep you healthy? Okay, then we give you penicillin and drugs and stuff. You know, we got to do that too. So, um, but and then all of that co- combined together um, creates the the wellness picture that we focus on. Um, housing on campus uh, surrounding Claremont. Uh, you know, there, we have housing on campus now. Claremont is close. The best thing you can do is that about three or four times a year. There's a preview day on the website, and you need to come up and you can hear all about osteopathic medicine, or if you're interested in going to the optometry session or the podiatry session, if you want to do surgery, you know, and take care of diabetes and, and, and extremities, you know, maybe you ought to listen to the podiatry session. Uh, they're always looking for good students. Our admissions, we had um, about, uh, we, last year we had 6,500 applicants um, on the Pomona campus, 3,200 3, on our Lebanon, Oregon campus. That's a very rural area. If any of you are from that area, you may be interested in that. Um, our entering GPA uh, is, uh, uh, the science GPA is a, a 3.6, and the MCAT is 28. Now, those of you that have taken post-bac, and, uh, and our post-bac is similar, it's focused on, on life experience. It's focused on um, populations that are underserved. And if you represent one of those, um, you know, we're hungry to talk to you and, and try to enrich our culture because we truly believe in the, in the need for cultural diversity, cultural understanding. So, the, the, again, the enrichment and we... Um, uh, we really try to fall back on the idea of, of um, lifelong learning, small group education. Uh, we break up into small groups in spite of the fact that the class size in Pomona is 200. Okay? Um, and I, I think I'll stop there and we'll wait for questions. Okay. Well, that sounds good. Thank you so much. Let's move now to Dr. Rodney Hood, who is an uh, alum of UC San Diego School of Medicine. He practices in an underserved area of San Diego. He is the former president of the National Medical Association, which he can tell you about. Um, and we're delighted to have him here. He seems like we're, I'm always running him in, into him on campus, so I'm sure I'm not the only one who's pulling him in for wonderful opportunities like this. So, 
Dr. Hood, why don't you um, share with the, the group what your experience has been? Okay. Um, first of all, um, I, I enjoy being here. Um, you give me energy. Um, I'm very delighted to see these faces. I've had the opportunity to kind of work with uh, some of the class or uh, previous classes, and your energy stimulates me. But you want to know a little bit about me. Um, the dean here helped me out a little bit when she said UCSD is a very young school. <laughs> and I graduated in its second class in 1973, so that makes me very young. Um, so I've been in practice about 35, 37 years. Um, I'm a general internist, and I practice in southeast San Diego. I've been there for the past uh, 37 years, and I still love medicine. What do I mean by that? Medicine has changed drastically over the past 30, 40 years since I've been practicing. And I've witnessed a lot of my colleagues who are very upset with medicine. They don't like managed care. They don't like this. Um, and I had to ask myself, well, why do I still love what I do? And I think one of the reasons why I love what I do is two words, respect and passion. I didn't go into the field that I went into because somebody was going to call me doctor. I thought that I was going to make a lot of money. I didn't go into certain specialty areas because I thought that that was the thing that my parents or whatever was, was going to make me look good. I followed my passion. And I have three children. One of them is a physician. The others are not. And they would often ask me, I would say, follow your passion. So first of all, who am I? I was born and raised in Roxbury, Massachusetts. It's part of Boston. It's mostly African-American area, very poor area. And my introduction to medicine was there. I was born at Boston City Hospital, which was a county hospital. And when I got sick, I was taken to the Boston City Clinic. It was a teaching hospital. Now, we're talking about 50-plus years ago. And I remember one time uh, I was at the clinic with my mother. Her name is Evelyn Hood, very proud black lady who has since died. And I thought that everybody in the world got their health care at Boston City Hospital. That was all I knew. And we're in a waiting room. And for those of you who don't know anything about Boston, at that time, there were uh, 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 South Boston, which was mostly Irish, East Boston, mo uh, mostly Italian, Roxbury, mostly. So it was very what we call de facto segregated. But at Boston City Hospital, if you were poor, that's where you went to get your, your, your uh, treatment. So we're patiently waiting there, and a young white intern would come out and say, Mrs. O'Donnell. And I'd see Mrs. O'Donnell and the children get up. Miss McGillicuddy. And finally, I heard Evelyn. I was so happy. I jumped up, and I'm ready to rush into the room, and my mother grabs me and sits me down. So by this time, the 
young resident saying, Evelyn, looking at her and me like, don't you know it's your turn? So he walks over and my mother looks at him and says, I did not give you permission to call me by my first name. Now, I was angry at my mother. I was embarrassed because I didn't understand what was going on. All I knew was it was our turn and she's talking to this doctor like that. It didn't hit me until later in life what had happened. It's called respect. And even to this day, even to this day, you know how you youngsters like to call everybody by their first name? I insist in my office that everybody, especially the elderly, are called by their last name until they're given permission. It's called respect. The other is passion. Do not go into medicine, nurse practitioner, PA, uh, uh, nursing. I don't really care what you go off into. But if it's medicine, have a passion for it. Um, I graduated from pharmacy school in Boston. Had no clue that I wanted to be a physician. I wanted to be a pharmacist. I was raised in Boston all of my life. Wanted to go to graduate school. Got accepted at UCSF, graduate pharmacology, toxicology, and their PhD program. Now, this is 40 years later, so I can tell you the truth. As a graduate student, uh, I was in a grad, my uh, professor wanted me to be an MD, PhD. But at that time, they had the Vietnam War. I was a rebel with a cause. And I decided I did not believe that the war was, I didn't tell them when I went to medical school this story. But um, uh, as a result, my draft status changed because you only got deferred if you were in medical school and dental school. So that stimulated me to apply to medical school sooner. (laughs) Number one. Number two, as a graduate student, I took most of the first year medical school class up at UC San Francisco and then applied to medical school and got accepted down here at UC San Diego. Um, I still had no idea what my what I wanted to do, what specialty I wanted to be in. And uh, they had at that time community medicine. They don't call it that anymore. I'm not sure what they call community medicine. But um, I had a, a thesis we had to do. And my thesis was on the origin of the sickle cell gene. And I was able to go down to southeast San Diego, do a project down there screening folks for sickle cell. And that was my introduction to this medical school to southeast San Diego. And as I matriculated through the school, um, I knew that I wanted to go in primary care and I wanted to serve a community like southeast San Diego. So I was fortunate enough to to be in the second graduate class here, number one. Number two, I did my internship and residency here at University, And when I completed it, I set up my practice in Southeast San Diego, and that's where I've been ever since. Now I want to tell you about the medical holy trinity. How much time do I have? Two minutes. Two minutes. It's going to be quick. 
Because this is where the passion comes in. What I learned is that the Holy Trinity of medicine is medicine, policy, and or politics, and money. As physicians, we only knew about medicine. But it was the politics, and he should talk about that, and the finance that really controlled what we did. So I uh, became president of a national organization called the National Medical Association, which is African-American physicians throughout the country, uh, um, headquartered in Washington, D.C. I testified before Congress. I um, uh, advocated for various policy, Medicare, Medicaid. Um, I also started and founded an organization called the Independent Physicians Association called the Multicultural IPA. It's now a $40 million entity that I'm still president of right here in San Diego, composed of private docs like myself, mostly minority, uh, uh, European, uh, Hispanic, Asian, African-American, and we contract with health plans to serve the population that we serve. Um, And it was that knowledge that led me to believe that um, I needed to try and find out more ways that I could make an impact other than just being a a physician. And if I have time, one of the, about two years ago, the uh, CMS or the Center for Medicaid, Medicare, they started an innovation center. It's actually part of Obamacare. And they put out uh, grants to say, we want you to come up with innovative ways to care for populations, especially underserved populations. Um, The Multicultural IPA was one of five sites, with the funding agency being through Rutgers, that uh, got a grant to put together high-intervention Uh, with a nurse, community workers, to work with patients who were having a hard time in the health system, who were in and out of the hospital. And our job was to make them better and to save money. And the data that we are now coming up with suggests that we are being successful. Um, And I see myself transitioning into another part of medicine that as a physician, I didn't think I would be at several years ago. And uh, that is really trying to find a way to transform medicine and and develop a business model that actually makes sense for the underserved population. That's exciting. Well, all right, we'll have to have another session on that altogether when you get down further down the road on that. Um, Our last panelist is Gerardo Lopez, who is a graduate of the UC San Diego post-baccalaureate pre-medical program. He graduated in June of this year. And so what we wanted him to do, come talk to him about what what is that post-baccalaureate experience um, and give you some sense of what that means. and, and And then we'll talk to the other panelists about what it means to them as admissions people for um, a medical school. Hi, guys. Um, So one of the things I want to touch on is uh, I was asked to talk about why my interest in medicine. So I was born in Lima, Peru. Um, I I was, as a young kid there, my first interests were, you know, hanging around the streets and, you know, hanging up playing in the streets with the kids. 
Um, but I realized from a young age that I, was, I had a very curious mind. I remember um, in the dinner table staring at a spoon and wondering why my image was upside down. I would follow ants and see where they were going. So I was very, very curious. Um, and I remember uh, one of my first, one of my really good friends, he was the first one to get cable TV in our neighborhood. And so we were all excited. We went there and we discovered the Discovery Channel. And I found that, you know, I really, really enjoyed that channel. I really, really wanted to watch all the science things going on there. Uh, and when I moved to the U.S., um, you know, we had even more scientific channels, and I really enjoyed that. And in schools, we had way more books that were about science. And I found that from a really, really young age, I was really interested in that. And it wasn't just specifically science. Like, I would watch the History Channel. I would watch, um, uh, like, the Learning Channel. And just I was really interested in learning about a lot of things. Um, and then as, as also as I was growing up, I discovered that I also enjoyed being around there for others. And I believe I got this from my grandmother. Since a young age, I would always watch her take care of me and our whole family. And, you know, and I remember, you know, you guys when you were little, like your parents would want to take care of you. And you're like, stop, just let me be, let, let me be, you know. Um, but as I grew up, I realized, like, I, I was naturally the same way. When I was around um, my classmates in middle school and they would need advice or something what's going on, I would always find myself inclined to be there, like, hey, can I help you? Like, do you want to talk about it? And then, you know, after a while, I realized, like, oh, this is, this is it, it's, it's, it's in my nature, you know. Um, so I really found that I enjoy that. Uh, and then in high school... Um, I had a choice in my senior year whether because it was taught at the same time to do mock trial class so it was either I want to be a lawyer or to take a human anatomy so I chose I said well I, I was like I'm already good at arguing so I don't need to take mock trial class so I, I did human anatomy and, and, I, and then I took that class and it was it was very very exciting you know we, we dissected a cat um, we learned about all um, you know physiology I still remember some of the enzymes in, in the uh, gastrointestinal tract, and I was very excited about that. I found that it was um, easy for me to memorize some of the bones and the muscles where I've always had trouble memorizing things. So very inclined to learn about that. So when I started college, I said, okay, let's, let's try this. Let's, let's major in biology. So I did, and then I started volunteering at clinics. And my first experience was at um, an internship called Clinical Care Centers in, uh, at the UC, at the Riverside um, Community Hospital. And for my first experience there, I, I found that I really, really enjoyed being around patients because um, as part of the internship, it was basically um, patient um, bedside care. So we, we, we brought them water, we brought them ice, um, and mainly just talked to them. And I remember I had this one patient, elderly patient, who w had a surgery the next day, and she was having trouble taking her enema to prepare for her surgery. And um, the nurses were trying to get to talk to her, and, and she didn't want to do it. And I remember I, I went in there, and pretty much I just sat there and talked to her. I just, you know, threw some jokes around, tried to get her comfortable. And when she finally took the first sip, she was like, ew, but we did it. You know, she gave me the high five, and I got really excited, and I said... That's, this is the feeling that I want to replicate like over and over and over. So I started volunteering even more and more. And, um, and one of my most interesting volunteering experiences was at the, as a um, Riverside uh, um, student-run health clinic where I, I, was, I helped medical students and sat there, and I, I was a translator there. Um, and that's when I realized, that's when I learned about the, the term underserved communities. So growing up, you know, I... So growing up, there was some some difference that I noticed were the way I was raised, the the environment that I lived in, 
compared to other people. But I never really understood why. I, I always just thought that's just how things were. And as I volunteered in the clinics, I, I, I began to understand what un- the term underserved community came from. And I, and I became inclined that this is, where, this is the community that I want to serve as a doctor. This is the people that I want to um, be around, be, be, be of aid to. So, when, so I went, as I was researching um, post-bac programs, um, I learned about the UCSD post-bac program, and that was one of their missions here. But what I really enjoyed about the post-bac program here, what really drew me to the program here, was that the curriculum for the classes, if you guys go on the website, it's already set online. And I really liked that because it made me think, I wanted to, to go to a program that I felt would really benefit me, would really prepare me to go to a good medical school. or Not, not just that, prepare me to be a good medical school applicant and a medical student. Um, and I saw the curriculum, and I saw that um, a lot of these classes, they sounded very interesting, like uh, um, uh, biology to, um, with, to medicine, uh, and then th- there was some... Uh, physiology classes involved, there was some um, biochem classes there, there was some pharmacology classes, and I thought to myself, people sat down in the committee and said, these classes are going to be great for our students, and I wanted that. And uh, I was telling some of you guys there that I was so excited about this program that I applied without even thinking about the price. So I looked at the price of the program after. And, I, it, and after when I thought about that, I was like, why did you do that? <laughs> but I was just really excited because I knew that you know, if I wanted to go to medical school, this is what I had to do. I had to do a postback program, and 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 I I said I'm gonna do whatever it takes to go to medical school. If this is what I have to do, I'm gonna do it. And I picked this program, like I said, because I felt that the the structure of this program was was great, and it was what I needed to be successful. And you know, I was already excited, but throughout the year, I was I was I was blown away by that stuff that I learned. And the stuff that I still remember now, and I know some of the post-bac program, some of the post-bac students here can attest to that. I still remember like what a left, bo- uh, left branch bundle block is, what a right branch bundle block is. I still know how to read an ECG. I still know how to diagnose a couple of diseases. I still know um, uh, a lot of pharmacology of what medicines to give to a patient, what medicines not to give. And it's very exciting. It, it really makes you feel when you learn those things. And um, our instructor, Steve, tell, tell us that the first-year medical students, second-year medical students learn that. It really makes you feel like, I can do this, you know? Like, I can really do this. And not just that, but the staff around us, um, Dr. Karen Kelly, who met with us a couple of times, gave us some talks. And at the end of the year, she actually helped us with our applications. Um, Grace, always emailing us, you know, making sure that we're on track, making sure that we're doing great. Steve Snide, always being there, you know, um, aiding us and just uh, making sure that we're doing great in our classes. That guy is so patient. Great, great teacher. And, you know, just that support and just the stuff that you learn. Um, the advisors are always there for you, for you guys. Always, They were always there for us. And that just, you know, that you always need that extra push, you know. You always need that extra push of confidence. And I believe that all of that, you know, now... You know, a year ago, I was, I felt good, I felt great about the program, and now that I'm done with the program, I really feel that I'm, I'm a great applicant, and I really feel that um, when a medical school does take me, I used to say if, but now I say when, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I feel like I'm going to be a great medical student because of this program, and I feel like I'm going to be a great doctor because of this program and because of the medical school that I go to. So if you guys have any questions, I'll leave those towards the end. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Just for those of you who, um, is this the first time perhaps you've heard about a post-baccalaureate pre-medical program? Um, There are two kinds. There's the record-enhancing kind that if you didn't do quite as well as you would have liked in college, 
and you want to enhance your record, you want to demonstrate to medical schools that you can, in fact, um, succeed in a rigorous science environment like medical school. Um, there are also, besides the record enhancer programs, there are uh, career changer programs. And those are for people who, say, were a history major or something completely unrelated to medicine. And those programs, um, which are also available throughout the country, help those students who have decided once they got their bachelor's, you know, I really, really, really want to go to medical school, and it gives them sort of a pre-med curriculum. So what I would love to do is to, to talk to, our, um, to Dr. Adams and Dr. Kelly and say, um, how, how do you look at students with a post-bac, you know, who have been through a post-bac program? What, how does that affect your thinking and in, in assessment of those students? Um, so we, as a committee, always look very carefully at students who have gone through a whole post-bac program. And the reason for that is that, um, number one, doing that demonstrates a drive and persistence that somebody coming directly out of college and applying to medical school may not have. All right. So to do a post-bag program, you're giving something up. You're giving up time. You're giving up money. <laughs> Gerardo alluded to that. You know, so to, to make that decision um, to pursue a post-bag program says to an admissions committee, whoa, this is somebody who really, really, really wants to do this. Okay. So for that reason, we tend to look very carefully at applicants who've done post-bag programs because if you just look at the overall numbers, the grades and the test scores, the grades may not look that good, right? Because a one year of the post-bac program is getting mushed in with all of the undergraduate grades. And so it's not if the grades are low to start with, say you're in a uh, grade-enhancing post-bac program, one year is not going to make a huge difference to the cumulative GPA, right? But what that one year can tell a school again, gets back to the academic readiness issue. If you can demonstrate to a school in rigorous coursework in a post-baccalaureate program that you can do well, all right, then that's saying to a medical school, I, I'm ready. I'm academic. You know, I'm ready to be able to handle a medical school curriculum. So how are medical school courses different than undergraduate courses? It's not that they're intellectually more challenging, um, and most of the medical students would, I think, support me on that. It's that they move along at a much faster pace, and the volume of information that is thrown at you is much bigger. So speed <laughs> and volume of information. So people liken it to trying to drink from a fire hose. You know, there's so much coming at you so quickly. So what we like to see in a post-bac program is that students have taken a number of challenging courses at the same time, right? Not just one course per quarter or one course per semester and extended the program out over several years, but that they've really challenged themselves to do a high volume of challenging coursework all at the same time. And so if they can do that and perform, you know, at a GPA 3.5 or so, I'm just throwing a number out there to give you a sense, level, that says to us academically ready, you know, to be able to do, um, to handle medical school coursework. But I, I never underestimate the persistence factor of students who have done post-bac programs because they, they've really had to think through this decision, right, because they, they're giving something up in order to go back to school, um, 
I so, think Dr. Adams referred to it as testing your, yeah, your passion yeah. there. So we want to see the other attributes that both Dr. Adams and I talked about, of course, as well. We want to see a commitment to a service profession. We want to see that you've really explored your interest in medicine and had the kinds of hands-on experiences in medical settings that, that test that desire. Um, but really, from the post-bac program standpoint, what we're really looking at is the academic achievement. Is the student now ready? We don't think they were in college, but are they now ready to be um, successful medical students? So don't worry about it getting averaged in with the overall GPA, because I think most schools will look at that one post-bac uh, program line on your application and see how you did in that year. Dr. Adams. Yeah, I, uh, I, I never forget the story of uh, a high school teacher who um, had like a 2-2 in his sciences 15 years ago, okay, but then did a post-bac and got the 3-5. The Honestly, we had some PhDs that still wanted to count the 2.2. I won't go there. Um, but uh, but was a teacher and and uh, and and that's what a physician is is a teacher um, and wound up being very successful. We, we did get him in. I took a little override on my part, but uh, we did get him in. And and it, it's exactly that. You can't be taken one course at a time. It's got to be the heavy load, as was described, because we do tease that apart. And, um, and uh, again, some of you, you know, taking some of those courses out at the community college where you ought to be superstars, okay? Nothing wrong with community colleges. We like the progression, and we look for students who came, uh, started in community colleges because they couldn't afford anything else coming from the communities that we're talking about. That's what we look for at Western um, Unfortunately, we get too many from USC since there's none here. But, uh, but uh, so the blend, the, the, the culture. But, and I really can't add anything to that. Our committee is very similar, and we have linkages. We save spots since we have such a large class. We save spots for uh, programs we're linked with that we've promised um, uh, spots if they, if if they do well. Okay, uh, because we really are committed to try to get this type of a, a, a mix. So what does, what does ethnicity mean to you? What does diversity in medicine mean? What, um, what have you experienced, as you heard here, in taking care of a patient and getting excited about that? And, oh, my God, don't apply to a DO school and never have talk to a DO other than read the website. You're going to sign your name DO for the rest of your life. Can you live with that? I can. But can you? Do you really care? Talk about passion and persistence. That's, you can do really well in that postgrad, but if you haven't had, if you haven't shown that you want to know What's, what's different? What's the same? You, you know, you got two strikes against you already. Secret. 
Okay. Um, Dr. Hood, I wanted to ask you to share with the audience your experience with the post-baccalaureate students that you had um, in practicing with you. Well, um, maybe it was uh, two years ago, or, 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 or was it last year, um, where I was asked to uh, talk uh, to your uh, post-bac class, um, students like this, and uh, talked to them about my experience and also talked about this grant you've heard me talk about. It's called the uh, Patient Health Improvement Innovation Grant. And um, we have been doing it two years. We're going off into our third year. And we're identifying very sick patients who are underserved, poor. Many of them have insurance, but they're in and out of the hospital because they have poor uh, uh, living environment, food issues, uh, educational issues, not able to navigate the system. And we have a team of folks that actually help them do all that. But what we found out was that we also needed uh, um, the team, the time of intervention is anywhere from about 30 days and some we keep in in nine, 10 months. And at that point in time, we uh, transition them out. Well, somebody who's had a lifelong um, uh, issue, uh, now they're in the 50s, 60s, or 70s, we haven't changed who they are. And um, we have a group of volunteers, and some of the first volunteers were from your program. Rottle was one, and basically they interact with the patients. They come in. They call the patients on a weekly basis, finding out what issues they're having. Some of them have actually volunteered to go out and do patient visits. So they actually go to the patient's home and they uh, see them in their home environment. Um, uh, They uh, help us find out what their needs are. Uh, uh, Some of them are food. So so in essence, they may uh, call somebody who we uh, graduated and a couple of times the volunteers came back and said, well, did you know Mrs. Uh, Jones uh, Thanksgiving is coming up and uh, she's not sure where she's going to eat. She's uh, legs are swelling up. And sometimes what, what they need is food. Uh, they're not taking their medications. And that information really came from the uh, volunteers. Um, uh, the. Many of them who haven't been there in the past several months, we still have patients calling up. They don't ask for me. They ask for Gerardo. They ask for the volunteers. Where's that young man? They think they're doctors (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, who I uh, talk to uh, because why they develop a personal relationship with these uh, patients. And it's kind of what I call the uh, overcoming the social barriers of medicine. So as a a clinician and as a a physician, you're taught how to treat hypertension, how to treat diabetes, and uh, what medications to uh, put them on. But after they leave, um, we're not aware of the social infrastructure that they go home to. And and to be honest, this is what I'm learning. A couple of patients who enrolled in, in the program I had been following for about 12 years. And I found out more about the patient in the past couple of months that they've been in the program than the 12 years, about who they were living with, how much income they had, what problems they had at home, what problems they didn't have at home. 
And and it was really the uh, student volunteers and we have community volunteers that were interacting with the uh, patients. Some of them just wanted to have the company of talking to somebody, somebody who cared. And that's where the passion comes in. So, Great. Thank you very much. Um, Gerardo, a couple of questions for you. What did you think was the most challenging part of the post-bac program? And what were you think were the greatest benefits? Um, I think initially just to get getting into the post-bac program and not knowing what's, what to expect at first. You know, that, that initial, like, when you get into something new, um, I, the, my first few weeks, I was a little like, okay, you know, we, I got to do great here. How am I going to do it? Is this really going to happen? You know, and just that, that initial doubt. But I think, um, and, and, and I think the benefit of that was the support, the initial support that we got from the beginning and throughout the program that really helped me with that. Um, the first day we came here, we had um, uh, uh, psychologists come in and just talk to us how de-stressing strategies, you know, for, um, and just that initial thing, just kind of like, okay, you know, they're here for us. And then, you know, just continuing on with Steve, you know, just keep encouraging us, keep telling us, hey, you know, some of the medical students can do this, too. Look, you guys can do it, too, you know, and then just support from the staff. And just, just knowing that, you know, there are people there who want you to succeed, um, who want you to, to be great students and eventually great medical students, I think that really, um, really, really helped me keep, keep going. And just, and I think one of the greatest things is that, um, the recruitment that was done for our program is, I think, is the same approach that I believe is done for the medical school, where they, they take a holistic approach, I think they call it, where they get students from various different backgrounds, various different life experience, experiences. And that really, um, I remember when I first came here, I was wondering, you know, why are we all so different, you know? And, and I, was very, I was taken back by that a little bit. But throughout the year and at the end of the year, I realized the purpose of that is so that we, so that we all learn from each other. Because in medicine, um, when you're working in a team of doctors, you know, everyone's going to have different ideas. Um, you may have same ideas, but everyone has going to have a certain um, philosophy that's going to be unique. And I think that's very important because it provides uh, multiple inputs into the, the benefit of the patient. So for us, you know, for our, 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 our cohort... You know, our patient or, or our baby was our good grades, like we were our success in the program. So we all really initially, because we all came from different backgrounds and different mentalities, we all put that in together into this, this pot, and we all just helped each other to succeed in the program. And we, there was no really competition between us. It was like, are you struggling? Let me help you. Are, uh, do you need this, this diagram? Let me give you this diagram. We had a page where we put it all up there. And I think that, that initial... Um, cohort, the initial group work, the initial um, idea of coming together to work together, I think that, that really stayed with us and is going to stay with us as we continue our career. It's going to help us later on work with different health uh, care professionals for the benefit of our patients. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Um, I, one of the things that I wanted to, to get out, since this is called the Persistence Factor, Alternative Pathways to Medical School, I wanted to make sure that you were aware of a program called PRIME. And Dr. Kelly can speak to that. It's a prime program at UCSD, and it is actually different than anything we've discussed so far. Yeah. So um, the prime programs are system-wide. So when we say system-wide, we mean all of the University of California medical schools have what's called a prime program. Um, Prime stands for Program in Medical Education. And for most of the schools of medicine uh, in the UC system, 
there's something that follows Prime. So there's Prime Latino community at uh, UC Irvine or rural Prime at Davis, uh, urban underserved Prime at UC San Francisco. Our own Prime program is called Prime uh, Health Equity. And, um, you know, so overall, the idea behind the Prime programs um, was to... uh, to create a structured program to better educate uh, physicians to deliver um, culturally competent care to um, patient populations that are have been historically traditionally underserved in our state. Um, so each of the campuses sort of designed then independently what they wanted their program to look like. Our own prime program in focusing quite broadly on the topic of health disparities was from the start inclusive um, by nature of including a lot of different um, populations that have been underserved by our healthcare system. I should mention that our program was started um, by our former assistant dean for diversity and community partnerships, Dr. Sandra Daly, and is now led by our current assistant dean for diversity and community partnerships, Dr. Lindia Willis-Hakobo. Both of them uh, pediatricians, both of them graduates of UC San Diego School of Medicine. And um, the the structure of the PRIME program um, is such that those students pursue some, all of the same core coursework that regular medical students pursue, but they have additionally in their first two years a set of elective courses um, that get them out into community settings in underserved communities and focus on both didactic, uh, didactics related to health care disparities, but then into communities uh, where there are a lot of health care disparities so that students can start to develop what is my particular interest as a student? What is the population I'm interested in focusing more in my educational program as a prime student? So we have students who are focusing on refugee populations in San Diego County or border health issues, or um, we have students in Southeast San Diego where Dr. Hood practices, and we have a big presence at Lincoln High School uh, of prime students teaching um, in the health curriculum uh, to high school students there. So the prime students are committed to doing an extra year of education, so they're really five-year combined master's MD students, and they can pursue their master's degree in any Um, field that they think will best help them uh, reach their academic goals in terms of the kind of of issues they're interested in trying to help solve in in healthcare disparities. So some of our, many of our students do masters of public health degrees for their master's program. Some have pursued master's degrees in education. Um, Some have pursued a master's in clinical research because their interest is in trying to um, do research in, in healthcare disparities. So uh, we're, it's a very flexible program that tries to uh, best meet each individual student's need in terms of what they want to make out of, of that educational program. There are about 10 students a year of our class of 125 students who are in the Prime Health Equity Program. Thank you. I think that's illuminating. More food for thought for all of you and I'm happy to report that it's now your turn, and we're happy to take questions from you. 
do remind me to repeat your question so that we're sure to get that recorded. But I'm sure you have questions. We have absolutely the best experts available. So let us know what's on your mind. I see what you're saying. um, So to repeat the question, um, what if a student leaves college for a couple of years, um, comes back and does excels apparently um, with a better performance than they had before they left? How do how do medical schools view that um, that student, Um, Dr. Adams? You want to start? Well, I think it's the total package. What did you do for those two years? Um, it, we we have uh, you know a lot of great uh, uh, applicants from the Church of Latter Day Saints. They they take two years and uh, um, either somewhere along the continuum, uh, one to two years. So again, it's what's the story? What'd you do? Why did you drop out? And then if and uh, if it was because of poor grades and did how did you find yourself? You know what was it? So I, it's all part of a continuum and a story, and and you know, especially two years, a year or two after undergrad, uh, truly engaged in some of the stories that you've heard about. Um, I think that elevates. It, it can be a good story. Dr. Kelly, yeah, I agree with that. Uh huh. I think that, you know, the final two years can certainly get just like a post-bac program can at the academic readiness issue. But it is important to be very honest and straightforward with what that two-year gap was all about, um, because people will want to know. You know, they're they're not going to ignore that. And it's always best to be honest. Because most people learn a lot from whatever that was all about. Whatever that experience was, whatever led you to leave and do something else, you've grown as a person as a result of that. And, um, you know, we have a phrase in our own admissions committee of that was then, this is now. I mean, people in their early 20s are not done growing up, right? Many of them are continuing to mature. So, but it it is important to be honest and straightforward. (laughs) Absolutely. And in fact, when you um, apply to the post-bac pre-med program at UCSD, we also look at those gaps and say, and again, want you to be honest. Uh, you know, not just, just like the medical school, we want to hear the same thing and just say, here's what happened. And here's what, you know, the, the effect of that. Other questions? Uh, the, the student has asked whether there's any connection between the UC San Diego post-bac pre-med program and admissions to the School of Medicine. And I'm going to punt that to Dr. Kelly. You mean admissions to the School of Medicine or to the School of Medicine in general? Okay. So, um, yes, certainly to the School of Medicine in general. So some of the coursework that's part of the post-bac program is taught by uh, Steve Schneid, who you heard Gerardo talk about, and he is a member of our Office of Educational Support Services providing educational support for the medical students. Um, the advisors for the post-bac program are all faculty at the School of Medicine, and uh, all of them have had significant experience on the admissions committee. Many of them are still current members of the admissions committee, but they've all had experience at some point on the admissions committee. So I think they're very helpful for the post-bac students from that perspective in terms of their advising to the students. And they spend a lot of time 
um, with the post-bac students in advising relationships. I think a huge strength of the program. I'm not one of the advisors, so I'm not talking about myself here, but, but I think it is a huge strength of the program. And finally, um, as Gerardo mentioned, I um, um, give a couple of didactic sessions to the post-bac students, but then I meet individually with all of them uh, in the spring quarter of the program to talk more with them about what is their plan or what do they want to do now. Um, do they still want to apply? If so, what kind of school do they want to apply to? Are they interested in a DO school um, or an MD school? Or are they interested in both? If, if DO, have they met a DO? <laughs> we actually do ask you them that question. You can all say that. <laughs> I saw one. <laughs> but, but anyway, so we, we do, I meet with them as well. And, and hopefully that's valuable to the applicants to, to get a sense. So I would say that, it, you know, the program, while administered through UCSD Extension, has many connections uh, to faculty uh, and staff at the School of Medicine. We don't have um, any um, linkages, so I'll, I'll put that right out there. We don't have, we don't reserve, you know, any certain number of positions in the school for students from the post-bac program, uh, but we certainly know who the students are uh, when they're applying, and um, uh, uh, many of them have been interviewed this year already. Many Others are already scheduled to be interviewed. So, um, you know, we, we view them as part of the applicant pool, but they are a group that we know a great deal about, and that is to their advantage. Usually. <laughs> <laughs> the, the other thing that, that um, I think is important is that the curriculum of the post-bac program was designed in complete concert with the advice of the School of Medicine. So that they were able to say these are the courses that a school of medicine would look at thinking are, um, are valuable and, and a true test of a student's ability. If I can add. Sure. Um, and to add to that, um, for example, the other day I went to one of the medical school classes and some of the things that they were being taught there, we were also taught by um, Steve Schneid. And then he also um, connects us with some of the medical students that are, are here in the school, so they also come and talk to us. So they also share their experiences with us, and we get an idea of what it is to be a medical student through them. And, I mean, we, we hang out with them, too. So it, it also it adds that connection from us to the medical school in a way through the medical students through that. We also did some um, practice interviews for them as well, uh, for the post-bac students. We did multiple mini-interview practices with the post-bac students last spring, and hopefully that was helpful to them as well. And, and a number of the classes that you take in the post-bac program are on the School of Medicine campus. So again, lots of connections. I saw another hand. Yes, sir. DOs profess to approach patients differently, the holistic, and, and I've already said that our allopathic brethren do a pretty good job at that too. Uh, but in that, we, we have that focus. What's different about the curriculum that makes that happen? Right, okay. The first, the first thing you've got to understand is every MD school across the country and every DO school across the country have slight variations of curriculum and different learning styles. We have a systems-based. We teach based on the GI system, the cardiology, you know, the heart, the lungs. The, and and there, so you need to understand that about any school you apply to first. Is that your learning style? Is that going to work? 
What we've added osteopathically is I used to love to meet the applicants as they come in, and I say, you know, the, uh, the first day of the week, you go over to the standardized patient uh, area, and you meet a standardized patient, and you have to break bad news. You've got to begin immediately talking to this patient, and we also do this as part of your interview, so practice. Um, and you have to connect. The second day, you put on your leotards, and you run down to the other end of campus, where you go to what we call osteopathic manipulative medicine, neuromuscular medicine. And you've actually got to touch a classmate. Some of the jocks jocks back there going, yeah, because 50% of the class are women, right? (laughs) And they're sweating it up big, believe me. And culturally, we, we have a very rich cultural balance. And culturally, this is tough. But we do it the first week. And, and then we learn, uh, we spend a great deal of time on the neuromuscular st- system and making the body work in that way. And, uh, and physical diagnosis is enhanced by the touch. I usually wear my DO, the do touch pin. DO touch, do, subtle. Okay. Some of the Asians with the last name do, do, is it's tough, I know. Um, but... But that's, I really believe, what's different, because the rest of it's the same. you got to do all of the same anatomy, physiology, you know, all of it's there, and then we have to cram this in, too. And trying to keep that humanistic, caring touch is where we spend extra time, quite honestly. Okay, if I might just summarize that, the question is, in post-bac programs, some are a certificate program, some give you a master's degree. Are they viewed differently by schools of medicine? Um, I can't speak for all schools. I can speak for us that I don't think we view them differently based on whether it's a master's degree program or not, so much as we view programs depending on our knowledge of the rigor of the coursework. All right, so some of the master's degree programs Uh, We know quite well to have very rigorous coursework. Some of them actually include about half of their coursework as first-year medical school courses. That tells us a lot, right? (laughs) If somebody does well relative to the medical students or even does average compared to the medical students in medical school coursework. So it's really more the rigor of the coursework from our perspective than it is what degree you get from the program. Dr. Adams, do you have anything yeah, to add? I'd, I'd have to agree. I, I, we chose to, to award a master's degree in that uh, and give some extra courses that make it a master's degree. But we did that not to get in so much as if you don't get in, at least you've got a master's degree. You know, but, but I would agree. It's, it goes back to the, the original comments about the rigor, about the rigor. That's what you're trying to show. Good question. Other, other questions? The uh, question came from an individual who said he grew up in southeast San Diego, and uh, what are some of the challenges that I as a clinician have found serving that uh, community? Um, and um, I think uh, the answer is many, um, but very rewarding. Um, Practicing in Southeast San Diego, 
was a lot different than practicing in La Jolla. Um, and not so much just the patients. Um, the, um, uh, if you look at San Diego County, uh, there are plenty of physicians per patient. But if you look at pockets of uh, San Diego, there are still physician shortage areas. In southeast San Diego is an area where not only do they have a shortage of primary care physicians like myself, but even specialists are in shortage areas. So therefore, um, I'm busy. Uh, that means that I, I, I never have a problem being busy, just getting paid for being busy. Um, because of the um, uh, population, some have insurance, some don't. Most of what I see has insurance. Many of them have, have uh, Medicaid that does not reimburse at the same rate as, as some of the other private insurances. And so there are ways we uh, compensate for that. That's called the business of medicine. Um, the other is... Um, uh, People talk about individual responsibility, like uh, uh, patients not being compliant with taking their medications, keeping their appointments. Um, many times in that population, you hear and you see that taking place, but it's because the system uh, wasn't accountable. It's very difficult. It's, if, if you have resources, it's, it becomes easier to exercise individual accountability. If you're underserved, you're, uh, even if you have insurance, sometimes you can't afford the copay. Sometimes you can't afford some of the uh, copays for the uh, medication. And so patients wind up what I call uh, pill budgeting. So instead of taking three that was recommended, they'll take one or two. And then their blood pressure is never uh, controlled. So um, uh, learning how not to get angry at the patient, but to develop systems that would actually assist the patient. And that's why I really enjoyed this um, grant and intervention that I have, because that's exactly what we're doing. We're identifying what I call those social barriers. And actually, the other thing that's good about it is um, uh, when patients are not able to be accountable, when patients are not taking their medications and they're getting sick, they wind up in the hospital, they wind up in the ER. That's costing our system a lot of money. When we're able to keep them out of the hospital, keep them out of the ER, we're now saving the system a lot of money. And the purpose for the grant is, are we showing cost savings? And the answer is yes. And the next thing is, can we convince those who were saving it for, to, to feedback so we can uh, continue. So uh, in a long way, the frustration is uh, learning how to build a better infrastructure for underserved uh, population. The reward is actually the patients. They, they, they really appreciate it when, when they see you making that effort. Okay. Other questions? We still have time. Yes, sir. So the question was from a current applicant um, for the 2015 um, entry into medical school, and he asked that if he's unsuccessful in getting into medical school, he's considering master's programs, and how would the master's programs be viewed uh, relative to post-bac uh, 
programs. I think that um, in general, uh, educational programs where one has done well are an asset to one's application. But the personal advice I would give to you would be to do it if it's what you want to do, not just because you think it will make your application better. Right, so biomedical informatics, I think, is a great <laughs> field to get a master's degree in because there's tremendous need now. There aren't a lot of people who are terribly knowledgeable about it who are also physicians. And so I, I think as, as a field that, that admissions committees would look at and say, oh, this is somebody who is bringing a very special uh, educational background um, to our medical school. Yeah, so it depends a little bit if the master's degree is for the purpose of demonstrating academic readiness or if it's because it's a content area that you're interested in developing expertise in. All right, so for example, master's of public health programs, I would always say do that if that is something that you are interested in. If public health is something you're interested in, by all means, pursue that. But don't necessarily look to a master's of public health program as a way to enhance your, your grades for medical school because the coursework is so different that it won't necessarily serve that purpose. But it's a terrific educational program for students who are interested in public health. We have many medical students who take a year off from medical school to pursue a master's of public health because it's what they're interested in. So am I making the, yeah. that distinction clear? Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Adams, do you that, want to that's add? That's the last example. It was the one I was going to use. I mean, uh, many, you know, I've seen a lot of students go off and do that master's when they needed to worry about their biochem and uh, uh, the, the, the number of, um, uh, of biology courses that they had and how well they did. It, uh, but if you've already got the 3.5, 3.8, 3 whatever, and and then you come and you've also got a master's in informatics, you don't think we're going to be looking at you? Yeah. But it's because you wanted to do that and you, you can tell a story again. But don't use the master's to make up uh, for deficient undergrad. Okay, yes. Do, do the, basically, do the DO schools look at... Uh, look at uh, uh, the fact that you've applied to both MD and DO schools uh, as a negative. Um, That is part of choice. Um, We have many, uh, many, we have students who are accepted at MD schools and choose to come to the DO school after they've gone through the process and that they've, they've connected and looked at the curriculum and, and, the, and the particular school and the region and whatever, uh, and they've been accepted at both, okay? Uh, do we, we ask the question, how many MD and how many DO schools? Um, occasionally, a, a student gets offended by that. And so we wonder, okay, why? Sometimes they're so offended they don't want to answer that question. Uh, but it, it really tells a story again. It's another story point. What have you thought about? And, and uh, again, if you're going to be accepted at a DO school, we want you to want to be there. Because if you're not happy, the faculty's not happy, and then the dean's not happy, and sometimes it goes the other way, but, but that's okay. But, so it, it's just part of the picture, and we certainly expect you 
to apply broadly uh, with with the percentages being as such. Now we do take 200, but we still have seven uh, combined with both campuses, 8,000 applicants. So you need to apply widely, but know why. Did helpful? Okay. And we don't know. So <laughs> we don't know if you've applied to a DO school. So, <laughs> and you don't ask it in the interview. I we don't it. ask, and it's not written anywhere. If it's not written anywhere, if you haven't volunteered the information, we won't know. Don't ask, don't tell. Don't ask, don't yeah, tell. I was just going to say that. <laughs> That's exactly right. All right, other questions? Yes. So I think the question is, what kinds of volunteer opportunities are most beneficial in terms of medical school applications? Dr. Kelly and yeah, I, I think that yes. I mean, the seven month program is is fine. Um, we like to see activities where students have really been involved in something rather than just watching everything. All right, and it's great to shadow physicians. I, I'm not saying you should not shadow physicians, but I like to see that. Um, Applicants have sat at the bedside of somebody who's ill and offered them some kind of comfort or wheeling patients. You can talk to patients a lot when you're wheeling them from one location of a hospital to another and and hear about their story. We have many applicants who are medical assistants or who have um, nursing uh, certificates and have worked in, in that Kind of setting, and that's nobody ever questions that. They know what it's all about, right? If they have been involved at that level. So, um, but yes, the volunteer services program at UCSD is fine. Yeah, I think it's the depth of involvement. Uh, certainly, um, the, the uh, clinical extender programs, which sounds similar to what you're referring to, you know, the Peace Corps, the you know, something where people are in, you're, you're really committed to, to something. We also want you to, to do some shadowing um, just so you can hear the stories. But, but more importantly is the type of volunteer work and the leadership that, that, uh, that you offered during that time may come out too. Because we're looking for leaders. Physicians have to be leaders in this new world. You're not going to, you know, the the idea of hanging a shingle and being by yourself by the time you guys get out of school is probably not going to be there. You're going to be leading a team. Mm -hmm. Um, I, you know, Dr. Hood, I was thinking about the students that you had in your office. You know, for students like these who are looking to volunteer, uh, do you do you accept students um, to come volunteer who aren't part of a formal program, or how, how is that even an opportunity that's possible? Uh, yeah, f- first of all, I am part of the volunteer clinical faculty of uh, UCSD, and I do have medical students that actually quote uh, shadow me, um, and uh, we have uh, with the um, innovation grant. Uh, we have those who are not medical students, actually community volunteers that actually work seeing patients um, 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 uh, volunteering. But I would like to um, suggest um, shadowing a physician is one thing. Shadowing Dr. Hood is something else. <laughs> um, because one of my passions isn't just being a physician 
but you heard me talk about the underserved. One of the things I lecture a lot about is health equity and health diversity. And I'm, my pet peeve is we don't need diversity. Everybody in here is diverse. We need equity. And most of us have no idea what that means. We talk about it, but we don't know what it means. And so when you follow me, I, I tell them up front, I am clear that you are going to get your clinical experience on physical exams, listening to the heart, diagnosis and all that. But what I want you to learn about is every day when I run into these patients and their issues, how do you deal with that? At, listen to the uh, patient and what are some of the uh, solutions if you're going to deal in this uh, population. And um, I really consider that one of my expertise and what I can give. Now, everybody's talking about medical school and really wanting to get into uh, medical school. And the advice you have received today is excellent. This is uh, your post-bac, whatever program you want to go off into. Um, there may be some who become part of a post-bac program, who get a master's, and for whatever reason, still are not able to get into medical school but still have the passion and desire to do so. There are other options in medicine. Ten years ago, I was asked to lead a delegation to Cuba that was accepting medical students from the United States. I was asked by the Congressional Black Caucus, who had just visited there, because there was an offer to accept 500 a year medical students from the United States, educate them for free. And uh, since then, I've been back there six times, did a thorough evaluation of the medical health system. When I first went, maybe there was about three or four. Now there's about 150 U.S. citizens who are matriculating through the Cuban health system. Um, the problem and this is why trying to go to school here is your first choice. But the problem was once when they graduated, matriculating back into the United States. There's now about four or five residencies in the United States that have begun to accept some of these students. One of them is right here. I think a San Ysidro uh, family practice uh, just accepted their first uh, Cuban medical student who I actually visited while I was there. Um, and the, the uh, curriculum there is vigorous. It's a very poor country, um, but uh, it's an alternative. It's not a typical Caribbean medical school. The, and, and, and the beauty is, for the residencies, is these are U.S. coming back speaking English and Spanish. And I haven't met one that has come back and joined a residency that hasn't gone into primary care. So uh, if, if uh, uh, there's a student here in San Diego I can introduce you to that loves talking about the uh, system, she's now going through a residency program here in uh, San Diego. But it's hard. So your first choice should be exactly what you're hearing now. <laughs> Try to get into medical school here. Can I... 
he gave you the answer. Remember, I just kind of said there diversity and ethnicity. And, you know, most people answer that question. Well, you know, you got to understand their language. He just gave you the answer to that hanging chad that I left out there for you. I wasn't going to give you the answer. Okay? That's what we want to hear, that you've experienced that. Absolutely. Okay, I think we have time for maybe one more question. What is the, the Navy scholarship uh, route, or military scholarship route? Public health, uh, similar. Right now there was additional spots in the... Uh, Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act uh, for public health is kind of similar, but a, a, a completely separate system. All three services, Army, Air Force, and Navy, have full scholarships plus stipends. You plus get paid while you're going to medical school. Uh, you, uh, uh, and uh, when you graduate, uh, you have to compete uh, for residency within the military, and 80 to 90 percent, you wind up doing your residency in the military. Um, they're phenomenal residencies uh, uh, that, and the, the full spectrum of residencies. The transition back is you're, you're golden because you've had four years to practice your specialty and you can go anywhere in the country because you've got a, you're a military officer. You theoretically uh, are an officer and a gentle person. You've, you've had leadership training. You've had a great residency. You're board certified, da-da-da-da-da. And who wouldn't hire you? You know, so that, that is huge. Or you stay for a career, which I say is 30. Some say it's 20. And, uh, you know, you have a retirement. Uh, plus, then you go to work, like I did. After 30 years in the Navy, uh, that's when I joined uh, the university, uh, having had multiple leadership roles. So it's, it's great. They're, they're competitive. Again, there's no quote-unquote war right now. So all the kids in California are now willing to join the military. I'm <clears throat> On the East Coast, there's, there's, it's very competitive. Somehow California laid back, you know, uh, there isn't, uh, it isn't as competitive here. But, but it is competitive uh, grade-wise. And if you have prior service, that's helpful. Did I answer your question? Okay, I think we're about out of time. Um, Our panelists will be here for just a few minutes, I hope. And perhaps you can ask a question one-on-one. We're delighted to have you. We hope to see you soon. We have your emails. We'll uh, just let you know about our post-bac program, and then you can let us know if you're interested or not. Thank you again.